we've been on a journey since January, and we're coming uh, to the end. A few more weeks left here uh, as we wrap up uh, our journey through the book of 2 Corinthians. Just by way of reminder, the book of 2 Corinthians was written to a church in a community, uh, a pretty significant community in the ancient world. It was a port community, and it had two ports and uh, a road that connected to two ports. And many people would come, and, and uh, instead of going around the peninsula, which was dangerous and added uh, 200 kilometers, they'd come to the port community and, and, and just cross this uh, I think it was six kilometer uh, span. Corinthians was uh, full of all kinds of things and uh, as far as temple worship and all kinds of people. It was a community that had grown quickly and uh, it was a fairly affluent community in many, many ways. Uh, the church was established by Paul. He went to Corinth and there he preached the gospel and the church advanced quickly. But there was trouble, there was issues, and uh, some of the issues that arise came from a group of people who uh, came to the community with a, a letter saying that they had the privilege, the support to preach and to lead the fellowship. And so the leadership of the Church of Corinth let them do that, and slowly over time they usurped Paul's leadership. As the apostle, they called him into question. And these leaders, uh, these apostles, these super apostles, were charismatic. And on the outside, they appeared to uh, have the blessing of God. On the outside, they appeared to do quite well. But Paul takes issue with them. And the book of Corinth is him defending, by and large, his ministry, his voice to the church. Uh, it's coming to a head. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, as we started off in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, you know, we, we dove into Paul's impression of the super apostles. Uh, at first, he's gentle with them. But when it gets to chapter 11, he says, these super apostles are servants of Satan. Make no mistake about it. Now, uh, as we dive into today's text, verses 16 uh, through to uh, verse 29, he's going to contrast his ministry, his life, with theirs. Now, this is a difficult passage of Scripture uh, for us on many fronts. Here in the Western world, we, we, our understanding of who God is and how he operates will go against what we're about to read today. Uh, 2 Corinthians, it's a hard book to hear because it pushes against uh, our ideology. Uh, and it's a hard book to apply because um, just as it's hard to hear, it's, we don't want to apply it because it means change. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to read verses 16 through to 29, and then we'll pray. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 16 through to 29. Hear now from God's word, reading from the English Standard Version. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boasting, uh, with this boasting confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. 
Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, bear wi- uh, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if some, uh, someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrew? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abram? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? Let's take a moment to pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word here this morning. Lord, it's so easy to take for granted the privilege that we have with your word. So many, even alive today, don't have access to your word. And for portions of history, the word wasn't available for the common people. Yet people, people sacrificed greatly, shed their own blood that we, the common people, could have your word. Thank you. Thank you for your word. We can carry it in our pocket. Thank you for your word. It's on our nightstand, on our coffee table. Thank you for your word. I pray that this morning as we dive into your word that we would not take for granted the great privilege that is ours. I pray, Father, that your spirit would speak the truth to each one of us and, Lord, that we would leave here transformed not by our own effort but by the work of your spirit because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Father, I pray that as we leave this place, people would see Christ in us, the hope of glory, and be drawn to you. May it be so, we pray, in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Paul is transitioning here in the text. He's called out these people who've been opposed to him. He's named them for who they are. Super apostles, servants of Satan. He's declared that they they have no business being a part of the ministry. 
And so as he transitions, he says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish. But even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. You see, Paul understands that he's about to boast about things that are difficult. If you're putting your resume forward, you don't talk about this kind of stuff. If you're looking for a leader, you typically look for someone who's been successful. That's typically what you do. And so Paul's about to engage in some foolishness in a sense. He's about to start speaking about some hardships. He's not going to speak about the churches he's planted. You know, the church in Philippi that, that's flourishing and doing so well. The church in Thessalonica that is doing so well. The churches in Galatia that are doing so well. He doesn't use these as his platform, these churches, these successes as his platform to say, listen, I am an apostle and you need to listen to me. Now we, in, in the Western world, that's typically how we, we move forward, isn't it? If we throw our resume together, or, or if we're, we're examining someone's uh, credentials, we typically want to look for success. Paul doesn't take his success, and he has a long list of them. He doesn't use his success to say you need to listen to me. As a matter of fact, he uses his hardship. His hardship, he allows his hardship to be the evidence that he is an apostle who should be listened to. And, and the intent of Paul is to contrast his reality, his experience, his hardship with those of these super apostles who have come in and usurped his leadership. This may seem like foolishness. Foolishness that he would boast about such hardship. He goes on to say, listen, what I am saying with this boastful confidence, he's confident about what he's about to share. I'm not saying as the Lord, but as a fool. In other words, he's saying, listen, the Lord is at work. This isn't Paul. This is the Lord at work in Paul in the midst of his circumstances. And since many are boasting according to the flesh, I too will boast. Uh, this is a direct... Uh, 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 pointing of the finger, so to speak, of these super apostles. You see, they've come in and they, they, they've said, look at what we've done. Look at the evidence of our ministry. Look at our success. Now listen to us as we move forward. You know, Paul's going to contrast these things. Paul now turns his attention to the church of Corinth and he calls them out. He's strong in his words in verse 9. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. In other words, what he's saying, he says to the leadership of the church, he says, look, you're using the wrong metric to determine success. You've been foolish. And you're bearing with servants of Satan. I mean, these are strong words. And then he, he identifies five military terms as to what's happening in the church. Look what he says. You bear it if someone makes a slave of you. In other words, if someone comes in, if the enemy comes in and, and overtakes a community, what do they do? They, they make slaves of those who survive. In other words, what Paul is saying is, listen, the apostles have come in. These super apostles have come in. And now you're a slave to them. You listen to them, you do what they say, you are a slave to them. 
You uh, devour uh, or devour you. They, 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 they devour you. They, they rip you apart. They... they don't bring life. And Paul uses this kind of language when he talks to the church of Galatians. In Galatians 5.15, he says to the church, but if you bite and you devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. In other words, what he's saying is that, that these leaders have come in and, and they've caused such friction, such tension in the body of Christ. They're fighting within. And there's not going to be much left. And he's calling the church leadership into question. He's saying, you're bearing with this. You're slaves. You're you're tearing each other up. You've allowed them to take advantage of you. Through cunning. Uh, through deceit. You're bearing up with this. They're, they're taking advantage of you. Paul is calling into question their motives. You see, when they would come, these super apostles, they would bring their letter of recommendation and then they would be given a voice, and they would be taken care of. Uh, the church of Corinth took care of these super apostles. They, they financially supported their ministry, and, and these apostles were taking advantage. They wanted more and more and more. It was all about them. It was about their ministry. Instead of being about the sheep, it was about them as leaders and Slowly, the resources of the church of Corinth was being wasted away. Now, Paul, in contrast, he refused to receive any kind of help from the church of Corinth. Actually, when he was in great distress, we read about this a few weeks ago, he went to the church of Macedonia and allowed them to provide their needs. It was a contrast. It was a judgment on these apostles. You bear up with these leaders who enslave you, who devour you, who take advantage of you, who puts on airs. They're so arrogant, Paul is saying. They're so arrogant and their self-righteousness reeks. They walk around with their chest puffed out. It's all about them, Paul says. They think that they're so great. And ultimately, they strike you in the face. Surely Paul is, is pointing to the reality of the Gospel of John when, when Jesus was struck in the face by a soldier, when he stood for truth. It's a violent attack. These leaders, Paul is calling into question, and he's saying to the church, why are you bearing with them? This isn't right. You need to call them into question. You, you, need to, you need to hold them accountable. You need, to, you need to speak the truth. Paul shifts from his attention on the church of Corinth and he begins to speak about himself. He goes on to say, to my shame, I must say we were too weak for that. Paul is being sarcastic here. He's saying, listen, I didn't take advantage of you. I didn't strike you in the I, I didn't come to devour you. I, I, I didn't do any of those things. I'm too weak. 
But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Paul is saying, listen, they want to talk about the flesh. Let's, let's compare. Are they Hebrew, he says. So am I. Are they Israelites? So, so am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. I measure up. In the flesh, I compare well to these leaders. Now look what Paul says next. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm speaking like a madman. Hmm. Are they servants of Christ? Up to this point, Paul, when he speaks about these servants, he compares himself. And, and the first comparison, he says, I'm not inferior to the super apostles. Here, he's not even saying that I'm equal with the super apostles. He's actually saying, no, I'm better than the super apostles. Uh, let me tell you why. Notice that he doesn't point to his charisma. Notice that he doesn't point to his ability to lead. Notice that he doesn't point to his past successes. No, instead, he points to his trials. I'm talking like a madman, he says. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Notice the words that he's connecting here. With far more, with far greater, with countless, often. He is saying in comparison to the super apostles, Everything that they've endured, I have endured more of. These are the stories of Paul. Uh, Luke captures the life of Paul in portion. And we don't get the full picture, but here we start to see with transparency the fullness of Paul's ministry with far greater labors, far more imprisonments. We will remember Two accounts in the book of Acts where Luke describes Paul in prison. One was in Philippi. You will remember the account. Paul and Silas were walking through the community, preaching the gospel, declaring the good news. A young girl is following behind them, demon-possessed. She's working for her masters, uh, 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 speaking of the future. As she follows Paul and Silas, she declares, these are servants of the Most High God. Paul, in his patience, endures, but eventually he turns around and he casts the unclean spirit out of the young girl. Instantly, a riot er erupts. The community grabs Paul and Silas, and even though he's a Roman citizen, there's no fair trial. No, they strip him and beat him. Then what they do is they take him to the prison and they put him in the center in stocks for the sake of the gospel. Now let that sink in for just a moment. He's in jail for freeing a young girl from an unclean spirit. He's in jail for preaching the gospel. That's all. That's his crime. We read further in the book of Acts, when he stands before King Agrippa, he asks to, to stand before the court in Rome. 
Again, he finds himself in jail under house arrest for the gospel. For the gospel. See, Paul's evidence that, that he is that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, his evidence is far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings. He's been beaten so often for the gospel of Jesus Christ, he can't even count them, friends. He can't even count them. And often near death. Often near death, he's been left for dead many, many times. Now, the wonderful thing about this passage of Scripture, to me, as we dive into this, listen, listen closely, the wonderful thing about this passage of Scripture is that there isn't a hint, there isn't a hint of self-pity. There isn't a hint of resentment. There isn't a hint of injustice. You see that? Not a hint. I love that. Why do I love that? Because that is how great our God is. That's how great our God is. I, I can't imagine having to endure such things as this. I can't imagine. Can you? Uh, that's not really rhetorical. <laughs> Can you imagine being thrown in prison for simply preaching the gospel? Could you imagine a crowd, mob justice, gathering around you and beating you near death? Why? Because you preached the gospel. Could you imagine? Could you imagine enduring hardships for the gospel? Some of my experiences has been that when it gets difficult, sometimes I look to God and I say, why God? Aren't you the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Why God is it so difficult? You see, the Western world has filtered the way we understand the gospel. It has. We think if we walk with Christ, we think if we know Jesus, we think if we're following him and declaring the gospel that somehow God will have our back in such a way that it won't be that difficult. That God will reveal his glory by defending us and helping us that we don't have to endure such things. And yet, yet part of God's redemptive act in these imprisonments, in these countless beatings, in these near-death experiences, part of God's redemptive act, the way that he redeems them, is it becomes the evidence to the church leaders in Corinth that God is at work and that Paul is truly an apostle. Friends, we are keenly aware that the opposition to the gospel in our culture is growing. Wouldn't we agree? It's growing. It's becoming more intense as the covering of Christianity or the Christian covering that we've experienced for most of my life is slowly slipping away. No longer is Christianity 
what rules the day. We are in a post-Christian world here in the West. And the opposition to the gospel is increasing. And we, to some degree or another, feel it and sense it. We read about this with Paul and we think to ourselves, how will we endure? How could we endure? Timothy says it well. Those who are godly will be persecuted, huh? Those who are godly will be persecuted. I don't know how we'll endure. But I know this. Jesus has said, enough trouble for today. Worry about today, not about tomorrow. I love that. We don't need to worry about tomorrow. We've got enough to deal with today. Let's not be anxious about how we'll endure or what lies ahead and the challenges that we need to to, uh, confront with the gospel of Christ. There's enough trouble today. Let Let us just live in the moment. I wonder if when Jesus said that, he was thinking of lamentations. In chapter 3, where the prophet Jeremiah says, there's enough grace and mercy for this day, (laughs) not so much for tomorrow. I love that truth, that reality, that there's enough grace and sufficiency for now, not for tomorrow. When tomorrow comes, there will be enough grace and mercy May we learn to live in the present and rest in him. See, Paul endured much, far greater labors, far more imprisonment, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less is less one. Romans 8 says that Paul loved his people, the Jewish people, so much, he would be cursed that they would come to know the saving grace of Christ. This love, this compassion, it refused, uh, it refused for him, he refused to stop preaching the good news of Christ. And five times, at the hands of the Jews, he received 40 lashes less one. You see, that comes from the book of Deuteronomy, where if there's a dispute between two people, they're to come to the court, and the judge is to decide between them. Acquitting the innocent and the condemned, the guilty. And then if the guilty man deserves to be beat, the judge shall cause him to lie down and beat him in the presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given, but not any more, lest if anyone should be, uh, go on to beat him with more stripes than that, they will be uh, degraded in your sight. The law said that you could only do 40. The Jews understood that it was not uh, appropriate to do more than that. They wanted to obey the law, and so what they would do in the days of Jesus was 40 less one, in case there was a counting error. Five times, Paul endured. He endured at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. That was by the Romans. It wasn't just the Jews, but it was also the Romans who would beat, uh, beat the, uh, 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 the guilty party. It was the Romans, we must remember, that beat Jesus and whipped him and, and, and scourged him. There is no uh, uh, maximum amount with the Romans. The Romans were allowed to do it until they, they felt content, until the person was dead. The Romans were, were allowed. There was no restraint for them. 
Three times uh, Paul would have been humped over a log in public to the shame of all people. He would have been stripped naked and from the bottom of his feet to the top of his back, he would have received a beating from the Romans. Why? For the gospel of Jesus Christ. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. You'll remember that. Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 20. Paul goes to Galatia, the province, much like Alberta, and there he preaches the gospel. This is in modern-day Turkey. And while he preached the gospel there, he was up in Lystra or Iconium. I can never keep the two communities straight. He's preaching the gospel and people are coming to faith. The Jewish leaders of the day despised the message because they were losing control and power over the people. They did not like what Paul was preaching because Paul was preaching truth and freedom. And so what do they do? They ensue a riot They chase Paul and Barnabas out of town and they head south and they go to uh, Iconium. And there they preach the gospel. They refuse to stop. People get saved. People come to faith. Those leaders who were up in uh, Lystra weren't content that Paul and Barnabas was out of their community. No, they chased down after them into Lystra. They ensue a riot because Paul is preaching can't imagine what this would have been like. And there they preach, and this riot ensues, and what do they do? They stone him. They stone him. It says that the disciples gathered around him and picked him up and carried him out of the city as though he were dead. Can you picture it? You're a new convert. You've just accepted Christ under the preaching of Paul, and all the people gathered around are new converts other than Barnabas. You'd be looking going, what did I sign up for? Are you, are you kidding me? My leader just got killed. Is, is this my fate? Wondering, do we run? What do we do here? And all of a sudden, Paul lying on the ground sputters. He's not dead. No, he's alive. He catches his breath and stands up, face a mess. Because he's just been stoned. I love what Paul does. He says, we're going back in. Man, now I don't know if I would have the courage and strength to do that. Except enough grace in the moment. Paul wanted to communicate that rocks can't stop the gospel. Paul wanted to communicate he was afraid of nothing. He simply did not please people. He was a servant of the Most High King. He goes back in. Once I was stolen three times, I was shipwrecked. Tonight and a day, I was adrift at sea. <laughs> I love that. Can you imagine being Paul's companion? Hey, like, haven't you been shipwrecked three times? Yeah. Okay, why don't you catch this boat? I'm going to get the next one. <laughs> wonder what that would have been like. And yet, even though he's shipwrecked three times, he doesn't stop traveling. Uh, the tendency for you, for me, for us would be, well, good night. No, this is too dangerous. We can't keep doing this. There's got to be a better way. Yet Paul, Paul gets on the boat. Notice here that the, the opposition to the gospel is natural now. Up to this point, it's people. It's the Gentiles, it's the Jews, it's the Romans, it's community opposing the gospel. But here, here it's weather. 
The shipwrecks were for sure because of storms, storms that had erupted as Paul's trying to go from point A to point B, and all of a sudden the storm is too great, and the danger is too great, and the ship falls apart under the duress of natural storms. Friends, many times I've tried to to do outreaches and... And boy, do I ever get discouraged when, when, when the weather doesn't cooperate. Boy, do I get discouraged and often wonder, where are you, God? Why aren't you on our side? Have we not prayed enough? Notice. Notice with Paul, there's no hint of frustration. No hint of self-pity. No hint of contempt towards God. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. I can't imagine what that would be like. I'm afraid of sharks, simply put. The thought of spending a night and a day at sea petrifies me. (laughs) And yet, and yet Paul continues on. He refuses to stop for the sake of the gospel. Jesus Christ has such a hold of him. The work of the Spirit in his life has given him all that he needs to endure such hardship. This is the promise of the gospel of Christ. That not only does he save us, he changes us and transforms us into his likeness. He does. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in city, in danger in the wilderness, in danger at sea, in danger from false brethren. The truth is that even though Paul, Paul understood the danger that, that, that awaited him as he went forth and preached the gospel, he refused to allow the danger to stop him. Friends, in our Western world, we tend to look at danger and the the challenges that are ahead and and we do an evaluation and determine whether whether or not we should move forward. I remember one of my uh, first missionary journeys to Zambia. I went to investigate uh, Zambia and to see about taking a group of youth to Zambia. And the mindset was that, how safe is this? I can still remember landing uh, by myself and the door opening and, and, and smelling Africa and think, wow, I'm finally here. How awesome, how great. With much excitement and enthusiasm, I anticipated that God was going to do some great things and that soon we would bring a group of youth over and see God work. I can remember meeting Dave Hunt for the very first time as he entered into the, the place I was staying. I remember looking at him and thinking, you can't be Dave Hunt because the guy I've been emailing is a lot older than you are. We jumped into his truck and we started to head north. We picked up a, 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 a national. His name was Joffrey. And we had another missionary with us. And we were, we were going up north to participate in an ordination service in the deep part of the bush. The whole time I'm thinking, how safe is this? What's it like? Will we, will we be able to, to be safe? Can I assure the parents that everything's going to be okay? Huh? Dave was quite a character. I remember pulling up to the first police stop because... The police didn't really have vehicles in Zambia. We were on the main stretch of the highway between Tanzania and Botswana, which ultimately connected uh, South Africa. 
Roads, uh, vehicles on that road were limited at best. If you saw a 10 over a 10-hour drive, that was, a, that was rush hour, you know. You didn't see many vehicles. We pull up to this stop, and I'll never forget it. It's the first stop. The policeman's there, and, and Dave says, uh, you're up. <laughs> the guy would come up to the window, and he says, uh, you have a Bible. And Dave says, nope, but I got a rope trick for you. <laughs> I jump out of the vehicle, scared to death, and share the gospel using a rope trick. Hmm. We continued on our journey. We bought some chickens for the party, strapped them onto the roof of our vehicle, and off we go up into the hill country in northern Zambia, a long way from the capital, a long way from where David lived, probably six hours. And as we're driving, the, the Zuzu is breaking down. It's not really working well. We didn't know what it was. It turned out the clutch had gone. A couple of pastors and a missionary and a local guy, we haven't a clue. I can still remember pulling over on the side of the road when the, the truck couldn't make it up the hill anymore and, and thinking to myself, are you serious? Like, we're out in the middle of nowhere. As we're on the side of the road, out from the bush, ascends some locals. I remember looking at Dave thinking, will AMA work here? Not so much. We hadn't seen people on the road for hours, just locals, but no vehicles. We popped the hood and, you know, we twisted this, looked at that, hypothesized why the thing was broken, but really, we don't have a clue. <laughs> I remember thinking, what are we going to do? This is too dangerous. We can't bring a bunch of youth here. How can I assure the parents that everything's going to be okay? Huh. Remember saying to Dave, what are we going to do? It's getting dark. Dave said, well, I, I guess we'll ask one of the locals if we can stay in one of their mud huts. I remember thinking, are you serious? He said, well, what other options do we have? I was like, yeah, yeah right. I guess that's what we'll be doing. When over the hill ascends an 18-wheeler. You see, two weeks prior... It's amazing how God answers prayer. Two weeks prior, Dave had been praying with uh, a lady, a young lady whose husband was trying to get a job transporting goods from Botswana, I mean, not, but, yeah, Tanzania to Botswana and back. And so Dave joined her in prayer. Sure enough, this fellow who, who Dave had been praying for and only met on occasion once or twice jumps out of the vehicle and looks at Dave, Pastor Dave. Sure enough, he helped us get out of there. We grabbed a 12-foot or 20-foot chain, I can't remember, but whatever it was, it was way too short. We hooked it up to the 18-wheeler and the front bumper of our Isuzu, and next thing you know, we started down the hill country back to one of the main cities. It must have taken us three hours. It was quite the stressful ride, as you can well imagine. Can't see a thing because the 18-wheeler is far uh, wider than we are. We're too close to the 18-wheeler, but it's our only way out. We just watched for brake lights and then tried to do the same as he did and hope that our bumper didn't get ripped off. I can remember pulling into the community, and Dave wanted to square up with the fellow who, who had towed us all that distance. It was one of his first runs and knew it wouldn't go well with his employer that now he was late helping us out. Dave wanted to give him some, some financial uh, compensation. As we're standing there, there was a bar that was just uh, uh, over the way, and a couple of drunk fellows came over to help us uh, one of the nationals who was with us said, no, these guys are a bunch of thugs. Have nothing to do with them. They're drunk. I remember thinking to myself, my goodness, 
this could get very dangerous and hairy. As we stood there and he was trying to get them to go, this crowd of guys, they wouldn't leave. Let us help us. Let us help you. Pay us. We'll help you. I thought, let's pay him. And <laughs> Yeah, essentially. Well, we determined that there was a, a uh, guest house that was down this slow-grade hill that we could kind of roll down this hill and pull in. So as Dave finished up with the 18-wheeler, we came back and said, okay, give it a push. A couple of the, the locals who had been drinking and were thugs, essentially, said, we'll help, we'll help, you pay us. We said, no, no, no. We don't need your help. We don't want your help. I don't think they knew that we couldn't drive away. We pushed with the doors open, jumped in, and these characters jumped on the truck, one on the bumper and one on the roof. Now they're mad because they've pushed and they deserve financial compensation. They're yelling at us, you owe us money, you owe us money. The problem is we can't drive away. No, we're just rolling down this hill and soon we're going to stop. And then what? Dave swerves a little bit and there's a guy on the roof, he's yelling in the window. There's chickens up there. Good grief. It's probably my third or second day in Africa and the whole time I'm thinking... Good night. I cannot bring a bunch of youth here. This is just too dangerous. They eventually fell off or jumped off. I'm not sure which. It was a bit too dark and walked away. We rolled into this um, place. I remember lying down under a bug net, <laughs> looking at Dave saying, this isn't going to work. I, I don't know how we can do this. This is too dangerous. Huh. Friends, frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the wilderness, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. Friends, what do we expect? Friends, our Western world has changed the way we view Christianity. We don't understand that the opposition uh, that rises up against us, hmm, it's hard. And yet there's enough grace. Jesus Christ can take our greatest challenges and transform us into the likeness of Christ. To finish this story, we ended up taking the youth to Zambia. And I can remember having conversations with the parents because they would look at me and say, well, they're doing God's work, so surely they will be safe. No, not so much. <laughs> but we did return. I think God spared me more than anyone else. Friends, what do we expect? In toil and in hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches. Um, man, I love this text, and yet, if I'm honest, it scares me to death. Because if I'm honest, I know I can't do this. If I'm honest, I know I'll cave. If I'm honest, it scares me. Yet that's where we find Christ, isn't it? Isn't that where we find Christ? Who is weak, says Paul, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall? And I'm not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. 
Friends, friends, the Lord has charted a path for each one of us. May we be careful the lens by which we, we interpret the journey we on, we're on. May we be careful about how we understand Jesus Christ the Lord and Him at work. Uh, may we, with open hands, choose to follow Him in the midst of our weakness and trust, trust that He will show up. More than that, that He will transform us. That irregardless of the circumstances that are thrown at us, irregardless of the opposition that we experience and endure, that we can come out the other side not bitter, not self-pitying, that we can come out the other side not feeling sorry for ourselves, but that we can rejoice in the sufficiency of Christ in the midst of our circumstances. Friends, may we not grow weary of following Christ wherever He leads us. Those who are godly will be persecuted. Friends, may we fix our gaze on Him, the author and perfecter of our faith, and trust that He will meet us And not only will we endure and survive, no, we will rejoice in Him. Let's stand together. What a wonderful and great God this is. Who would would demand such loyalty and who would give such loyalty? Maybe you're here and you've never considered Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And as you listen, you, you are in awe. This is foolishness. This is madness. And yet you're drawn. You're drawn to Christ because you say there's something more there. I want a piece of it. If Jesus Christ can change me from the inside, from being selfish, if Jesus Christ can change me from being all about me, I want in. Call on him. Call on him. Admit your sin and your failure. Admit that you are weak and that you need him. Receive what he did on the cross. And accept the work of transformation that will begin the moment you call on his name. Call on him. Friends, maybe you've called on his name, but your circumstances have been hard. They've been difficult. You're struggling to see Christ in your circumstances. You're starting to feel sorry for yourself. You're starting to wonder, where is Jesus? How can he be glorified? Maybe you're wondering whether you should do this or that because the consequences are great. It could cost you your your livelihood. It could cost you a relationship, a friendship. You're wondering to yourself, the stakes are too high. Where is God? Friends, he is there. He is there. Look to him. Allow him to minister to you in your circumstances, in your needs. Is it going to be easy? No. Is it going to be difficult? Yes. But he is more than enough. He's conquered sin and death. He's risen from the grave. Friends, he is enough. Look to him. And so, Lord Jesus, you know, you know who we are. You know our struggles, our battles, our victories, our fear. You know where we stand before you. And so come, we pray. For you are a good, good God. We can trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.